BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Diversity Remix, only provocative conversations at the intersection of business, politics, and culture. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. This week's episode, Is Woke Capitalism Tyrannical? In our deep dive today, some recent observers have noted a shift of corporate ethos away from an organizing principle focused chiefly on profits and shareholder value to a perspective that considers the corporation a political player, even an activist. Does this shift contribute to or detract from the lives of a company's constituents? And what does it bode for the future of business and politics? And in Courage or Cringe, Robin DiAngelo's Nice Racism, an Olympian drops the hammer, and the NBA Finals' new controversy. Is the novel theory that white progressives present the greatest threat to racial equality a previously hidden insight which deserves study and consideration? Or is it a scandalous PR headline designed to sell books and drive views rather than enter into a real dialogue about race? Is a gold medalist's recent claim of a setup while on the podium of a medal ceremony evidence of insensitivity from an out-of-touch governing body? Or is it an oversight that is now being orchestrated and leveraged into a profitable public relations exercise? And finally, is the mea culpa issued by a major sports analyst a heartfelt act of contrition for racial insensitivity? Or is it a hypocritical self-preservation tactic reflecting a broader corrosive corporate culture? This and so much more this week on TDR. Did you have good fourth? Uh, I did. I did. I was telling you about my uh, awesome hike got <laughs> way carried away do you just point to like a landmark and you said you were going to go to it how did it, you end it, up it wasn't really meant to be that it's just that i'm always hiking with my daughter mm-hmm. right who's nine and uh she's usually the one that keeps me balanced right exactly we were you know thoughtful about okay how, how far we're we gonna go do you have enough food snacks but i was by myself this time so i was like oh, okay i'm gonna just go here like, eh, that's not that far i didn't go there no food no snacks and, and it was and I, I had thought about this with her before so when you go to griffith park once you go past the, actually on the observatory itself, you can see it already. You can see the Hollywood sign. You can tell it's a ways, but I'm like, it's a ways, but like, it's doable. You're like, I think to myself, how, <laughs> that's why I think about things like, yeah, how how quickly can I get there? Right. Uh, and yeah, that's basically what I decided to do. I'm like, I just want to try it from here. Do you ever, do you ever, and, like, yeah, I took a, do you ever come over a ridge and look out and kind of imagine 
you know, 500 years ago, maybe not quite that long ago. How long was it? Yeah, maybe 500 years ago. I mean, the, you know, the missionaries were here in the 16th century, right? So you ever look and go like, I wonder what this looked like back then? And you're sitting here going, I'm trying to get to the Hollywood signs. People had no idea where the hell they were walking to. Well, there's that. What I did think about... The the ocean, I guess. Yeah, what I did think about is that how many different parts of LA you see on that hike. So as you're going up to, to Griffith Observatory... You see downtown LA. If you on your right, if you look, if you look back, you can once you're up there, you can see like towards the beach, right? And then when you walk on that ridge, that basically gets you from where the observatory is all the way to the Hollywood sign. The route that I took kind of got me to the backside of it, so I could see the valley. And I thought it was so interesting. Like, man, these are like so it's different areas that are actually very far from each other, relatively in LA terms, right? Traffic wise, mm-hmm. but in this one walk. That, yeah, it was like, you know, almost a three-hour hike, but you kind of got to see because you're in that part of the mountain, you can see to both sides. It's the same dynamic that happens. And that's really cool. The same dynamic that happens on the Strip in Las Vegas. It's like, I can walk from the Cosmo to right, the Aria. exactly. That's not that far. Not that far. It takes you four hours to get there. Yeah, exactly. So, well, so well, you it, was, survived. it was pretty fun. I survived. A little sunburn. Nice. But, you And know. you got a chance to look down from on high onto... Hollywood and the purveyors of all the culture that we're going to be talking about today in our in our uh, deep there dive. There you go. Yeah, 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 exactly. How's that for a segue? Is that okay? Uh, quite, I'm doing my quite best. A segue. It's late. Quite a segue. Yeah, exactly. It's late in the day. Um, Woke yeah. capitalism. I didn't well, yeah. even know that was a thing. Yeah, that's well. Apparently, it's a thing. I don't know either. But this is actually a really interesting uh, uh, article that you actually you shared with me. I did, and I love the title because look, I'm, I'm also very conscious that based on my own orientation. I tend to lean pretty hard one way when looking at some of these issues. And I, f- I love being able to read this piece that was actually titled The Tyranny of Woke Capitalism, a piece that was written by Frank Ferretti and published on Spike. But it really got into this whole issue of the type of capitalism that is now very prevalent and, and really where the roots of it come from, which I thought was really like pretty awesome to actually look at that because we think of this as a very current thing, maybe a thing that we only think about maybe the last couple of years, but at least based on the on the cases Peace was making, something that has actually started like in the seventies. Have you heard? So of that it? was really yeah, <laughs> super no, interesting. It, from it that goes standpoint. back the, the whole yeah. historical piece of it. Had you heard of this um, political magazine Spike? Before? Never heard of it. No, no, no. Neither had I. I came across the article. Apparently, they've been around for twenty years. They were founded in two thousand one. The New York Times had calls them. They're British and mm-hmm. calls them an often biting British publication, fond of puncturing all manner of ideological balloons. That was right. That's their, uh, but, but their if I read claim it, to fame. I mean, their position seems to be fairly libertarian, I think, right? That's that, kind of like the, that's the, certainly the, the that's certainly the tone of the article of this um, article for sure. But I, I read it and it, it, I read some piece about it, and that's that's the way that at least they frame the the publication. Their website, uh, they're based in London. Their website says that they cover current affairs from a radical, comma democratic, comma pro freedom and humanist perspective. So that all sounds code for libertarian. Yeah, to it's me. all libertarian. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, it's, it's interesting. But I'd never heard of it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, the, the, this whole thing about woke capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. Which it really kind of talks about, is the shift from companies that were historically primarily concerned with making money, to now the corporations that that can now that that can now be viewed as political activists, right? So, it talks about that history. Now, part of what I thought was a lot of it that that was super interesting, but I'll, I'll try to point a couple of things. One is mm-hmm. that. The piece actually pointed out that while the argument of the culture wars has really been primarily focused around the universities, right? And, you know, we've talked about even our last episode, this whole thing about, uh, um, you know, whether it's uh, critical, critical race, race theory, theory, like yeah. all these things about, you know, you know, these kids getting programmed to have very leftist ideologies. Mm-hmm. Um, but the same dynamic can actually is also taking place, at least what they're making the point here, on other spheres of public life, including the private sector, right? 
And, and, and just as an aside, Jesus, I think that like from the you know the other side of the offense would say to the to this point, universities, um, Hollywood, right? And then there's a third. I always forget the third. Universities, Hollywood. Oh, and uh, well, no, that is universities. I guess the educational system in Hollywood tend to be the big culture makers, mm-hmm. and they are predom- They predominate around a particular set or you know, set of ideologies, range, but really yeah, a range, yeah, yeah. Of ideologies yeah, range of ideologies that are, that are yeah, usually yeah. left of center, right? So that's like kind of the thing. But it is true that in those conversations that I've heard people talk about this, these sort of uh, sources or fonts of these ideologies, the corporations are not mentioned. And yet I find myself oftentimes making this point on this show mm-hmm. that, yeah, a lot, that a lot of, and, and I hadn't like actually thought of it as a movement in a way until I read this article. That's what kind of, uh, that's what I found so interesting because you're right. I, I agree with you and I see it. And I see it in the context of, you know, much more of these corporations having to sort of support these ideological views or having much more activists, even how they call them, it's true. But I had not thought about it as a movement, and especially a movement that goes back as far as at least this, this piece that she talks about, mm-hmm. right? So the idea here is that firms are not, not just competing with one another based on having to get a bigger share of the market, right, or being the most profitable, but they're not also competing against the maximum exposure of their woke credentials. I remember the CEO of LinkedIn or something, like a few years ago, they, they, they talked about... Um, what was the name for it? The shareholder capitalism or something? There was a new name that they gave mm. to it about, hey, we're, we don't just care about our shareholders. We care right. about our stakeholders. And that became a whole thing. Stakeholders. Maybe yeah. it was stakeholder capitalism. They actually capitalism. talk about this. Yeah, yeah. So as an example of that, right, in April uh, of this year, more than 120 CEOs, business leaders, and, and lawyers gathered on a Zoom meeting to discuss and organize the campaign to defeat some of these Republican state voting laws, Right. Now, as part of that conversation, they discussed pulling their donations to political parties, right, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. And they also talked about refusing to move businesses or jobs that, to states that pass these laws. Which has happened now a lot in, in Georgia. And not just, and and by the place. way, and it's also like sports league. Remember, like That's Major right, League Baseball, Major Baseball moved their, mm-hmm. their all-star game out of uh, Georgia to, is it Denver? Where, where did they move it to? I don't remember. From Atlanta, I think, to, to I Denver. That, right? And I know Atlanta sued or something. I don't know where that is. Yeah, but the, but that's actually, that's happening, was it this week or next week? Whenever that's happening. It's, it's coming up really, really soon. But yeah, I think it's... It's in Maha Stadium where they're going to be playing that. Even the idea of 120 CEOs of gathering together to battle Republican-led state voting laws is something that 10 years ago, even if there these were like some very left of – if they were super progressive or liberal right. CEOs, they probably wouldn't have all gathered on a thing that distinctly or explicitly positioned yeah. against a particular political party. I don't. I mean, You're I don't know. Right. Maybe they would have, but I, I don't see that. It wouldn't be the case, but I think so much of this speaks to the role that, frankly, I think social media has played in being able to call out these organizations when their values are not aligning with the values yeah. of their of their customers or their employees, and and or not mention this and right because sometimes those two actually align really really well. Because I think, I think for those companies where their customers are not in that same kind of political orientation, they're not the ones that are leading this kind of charge. What we're talking about here is many, many times, many of these more tech-leaning, media-leaning, more youth-leaning, I would say, brands that have to be concerned about what their consumers are, are you know, care about 
and what those employees you know tend to care about, which those tend to be a little bit more on the progressive side. I think I have a sense that Trump obviously had a lot to do with this too, because sure. there, the, you you know the 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 sense of urgency that a lot of these folks who maybe have always been left of center, maybe they always have, but just the sense of urgency that started getting built during Trump's presidency about we got to do something, we have to do something. Like I think maybe that flushed a lot of these guys out into the. In, I think the social media thing is right, but I think yeah. beyond that, but, but I don't know if it would have happened if there was another. If there was George Bush III had gotten elected, well, I don't know if I think Donald uh, President Trump uh, accelerated what was already happening. Oh, okay, kind of the same thing. Uh, like in you know, we think about COVID. I think many times what happens is accelerate trends that are already starting to move in that direction, right? And that's actually part of what this thing talks about. What was even more impactful about those 120 uh, CEOs is the fact that there was this that all led to this full page ad that was placed on New York Times, which featured this letter, right, defending the voter voter rights. That was signed by over 300 corporate leaders, celebrities, and other cultural elites. So basically, those 120 people, CEOs, then sort of generated this Rallied. movement that was even yeah. bigger, right? Yeah. Including more people. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what that piece was about is like, well, who didn't sign it and why, right? So that yeah. becomes a social pressure. That's For kind of what sure. it is, right? Yeah. Who's on the list? Now, naughty or nice. This piece specifically did get, you know, gets into, of course, making the case against this level of embalmment by these corporations, right? Mm-hmm. And once again, you got to think about the perspective of that this piece is coming from, which is a much more libertarian point of view, saying that now many of them appear determined to invade political life in order to directly influence lawmaking and government. They are determined to ensure that it is their views rather than those elected of elected officials or politicians and the people that prevail. So is right? it fair to say, or I mean, I don't know if it uses this term, but the idea of the bully pulpit has always been a presidential or maybe high political person's, uh, the, the way to define their level of influence, right? They have the bully right. pulpit, they're able, what they say, they can kind of, yes, they don't have to say something <clears throat> explicitly, but they can wink at it and suggest it and change happens. So is it is it... Is it the assertion here that the bully pulpit could also be evolving and the bully pulpit is now on the at the CEO's well, yeah, desk? at the CEO's desk and CEOs who have real power, who have uh, economic power, who have the ability to change job markets, right? Who control basically, does that make sense, the, the livelihood of a lot of people involved? Jobs. Jobs, right? So all of these things that are like are real and can therefore put pressure on local governments, and federal government for that matter, right, to, to create change. So, right. so there is something there that, that's, that's pretty legit. I think the one part, even if I want to start picking apart or mm-hmm. nitpicking at what he's saying, is sure. that to the degree that those CEOs, well, I guess it depends on where you start in that, where you stand in these issues, right? Do the CEOs really do not at all represent the will of the people? They represent the will of some people, at least, as it has to be at least their consumers and or and or, um, uh, employees, because if they didn't do that, We've seen the other side of that is when CEOs come out and they come out very publicly against issues that their own customers don't believe in, all of a sudden that could fall apart really, really quickly. Really quickly. So I think that's a danger zone if you're a CEO is like, hey, if you're going to get political, you better be in alignment with the majority of your of your customers or be willing to lose a, a big share of them if you're saying something that ends up falling outside, outside of what they believe in. If you play this out to its nth degree, do you get into this kind of dystopian um, science fiction novel type world where... The, it's not a democratic republic, but it's basically a kind of, you know, consumer driven, this bully pulpit thing where basically forget about our elected officials. It's all about how the consumers align with the biggest brands that draw the most I, water. I think that's actually a really I, interesting it, idea, right? Because certainly a good novel. When you think about this, else. consumers, if you think about voting in two contexts, voting of actual traditional voting, right? Where you vote for people and or, you know, laws, et cetera. 
uh, or policy. Um, that's one form of voting. The other form of voting that happens much more frequently and everyone's involved is you're voting with your wallet, what you're willing to spend on or not spend on. The third piece that we've now sort of seen come out is is the voting on social, right? This sort of the signaling that people do and therefore create can create momentum, both positive and negative, based on what people support. Yeah. Even in cases where those consumers are not necessarily consumers of that brand, but can still create a big havoc, right? To, to, so I think that's is sort of that is what the evolving has or progression has now become is that before it was all based on just the first part, just voting for officials and or you know laws. Now we're talking about in the case of how people are voting, it's much more consumer-based, especially as, as brands have become much more public. And really, they've become that because they've been forced to become that. They have, which kind of brings to that, light the whole idea know, of whether or not this is authentic. And then to what degree, like sure. the super cynic will be like, well, what does what it does even it matter? matter? Why does it matter? I agree with that. It's like, you know, does it really matter? Like, look at all the other market research that's out there. And people say they like, uh, I don't know, gum that's blue. Well, I don't, I hate blue. It's like, I'm not, you know, if you issue a value judgment, who cares? It's like, you're still going to make blue gum because it sells more, right? That's your right. job is to make things right. that sell more. So uh, yeah, at some point you could get, you go down that kind of rabbit hole too and get fairly cynical about this. But I agree. So in this piece, right, they actually talked about where this kind of came from, right? This rise of the woke corporation. And, and I love the references that they had. They had a number of them, so I didn't pull all of them. I just pulled like a couple of examples. Right. One is they talked about this. It, this sort of started in the 1970s. So one of those starts, it actually refers to this book written by Daniel Bell. Mm-hmm. The book was called The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism that was written in 1976. Now, with this book, he states that the power of capitalism, hostile, adversary, cultural, literally shattered bourgeois culture to the point that almost no one is prepared to defend it. And concluded that without any significant cultural support, capitalism lacked a moral justification of authority. Hmm, that's super that's interesting. That's a super interesting quote. Right. Okay. Right. And it's like this idea is like when, you, when your stance is we're going to drive profit above everything else, then it's really hard because you can start seeing how bad actors can come into play. You can start seeing how in driving profit, you could actually hurt customers, right. employees. You could do a lot of bad while driving profit. So it becomes the point like it's really hard for people to defend that if that is your sole driver of what you're trying to do as an organization. So the lay the layperson's definition or translation of what you just said is that basically this idea that it's money and profit at all costs created a real PR problem among the idea of capitalism as an economic system. And as a result, not a lot of people were trying to defend it. And so it didn't have like a moral compass. It it lacked the moral moral compass in a way to justify it, right? So that's the... That's a really really interesting dynamic. And I had a couple of other quotes that I didn't put in here where it sort of created its own problem, right? Now, these early traces of this woke capitalism were visible in the 70s, right? Now, part of this is that many of the leaders of the capitalist institution have become defensive when confronted with criticism of their activities, right? Going back to profit over everything, right? And in a way, to win over public opinion, which you just stated out as a PR move, big businesses responded by embracing the narrative of social responsibility and promoting itself as an advocate for stakeholder capitalism, That's which is what we were talking, talking about, about, right? Yeah. yeah. Look, and, and even companies now, there's still very big groups called, you know, CSR, right? Corporate Social, social respons- responsibility. responsibility. This whole thing like, hey, we also are not just... And they're spending hundreds of millions to, per company on that stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And part of what we've talked about is now this further evolution where the CSR group is now starting to blend into the marketing group because consumers care about the stuff. It was before it was enough like, oh, you're doing some good and in, in right. investing. That's great. That's the but now tax like, no, 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 no. Like, it's a tax I want write-off. this to be much more a way as to how to engage me as a consumer, right? 
Now, that movement, mm. of course, had you know, caused some concern. Very right? interesting. Mm-hmm. That doctrine of social responsibility will call into question business culture. Right, so it kind of starts to undermine business right. culture, profitability, can, no matter no matter what. Sure, and you can imagine that, right? The conference sure, room conversation about it's like, course. hey, when did we stop caring about the bottom line and you know our quarterly earnings and all that, and now yeah. we're worried about uh, you know whatever so the water have, quality in Flint, Michigan. You have Milton Friedman, right, who wrote as long as a title, "The Social Responsibility of Business Is to inc- Increase Its Profits." Right, mm-hmm. that's. <laughs> And it warned that businessmen who talk this way, this way meaning social responsibility, are under unwitting, unwitting, unwitting mm-hmm. puppets of the intellectual forces that have been undermining the basis of a free society these past decades. So his point. By the way, I've doesn't heard, that sound like a statement that, would, that, 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 that just came out a week ago, it, rather than like in the seventies? I was gonna say, yeah. That's like um, <laughs> this guy Milton Friedman. I've heard him come up many times, um, and I know he's a he's I think he's an economist, but I um, I've heard him come up many times in a lot of like you know YouTube videos. And debates and things like that. So I don't know a ton about him, but yeah, I don't know. what it seems like he's saying here in terms of um, the social responsibility of businesses to increase its profits, meaning that the, or at least this is how I interpret it, that the correct uh, function of a business is to generate uh, revenues, income, jobs. Right. Uh, that is how it contributes to the society. If you go right. beyond that, you kind of you By miss out. economic opportunity, right? Correct. And then you kind of muck up your original charter if you start getting into all these different other and, things. And the problem with that is what he's stating is like, and then when you open yourself to that, then you're going to be just at the whims of whatever the next social issue comes up. Now you support that too. Mm, also and, super and interesting. You know, super interesting. Not incorrect necessarily. Not right? incorrect. <laughs> I would say not that. incorrect. Um, and, the w- and the winds blow in a lot of different directions. Sure, you know sure, I mean? sure. Now, for those corporations, right, that have taken on social responsibility, those views have tended to be much more progressive leaning, right? Mm-hmm. And as one study pointed out, which they mentioned in the in the piece, they said it is noteworth- noteworthy that although corporations and CEOs have conventionally been associated with economic conservatism, CEO activism is almost always directed towards progressive political issues. This is also That's true what you were in, my, saying. in my experience. For this sure. is also very true. Completely agree with that. The yeah. variety of issues that recent CEO activism addresses is indicative of this. For example, as evident by the focus on immigration, gun control, abortion, racial and ethnic tolerance, LGBTQI rights, and climate change. Right. So they're right. And I think that while there are cases of CEO activists who are more conservative, right? We've talked about in the past, like... The CEO of Goya. Goya, Chick-fil-A, Chick-fil-A. right? Like, it is a much, much smaller group. It's a much smaller group, group, and they, they get a lot of press, but not in the good way when they step out right. on those issues. Right, 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 right. For sure. So so there, so I think that's... There are also things sounds very reasonable what he's saying. So this piece really talked about this woke capitalism in three phases, and this is what I thought was the most interesting of this piece. The chronology. Right? The chronology, yeah. right? And kind of how it's evolved. So phase one, which they considered between the 80s and 90s, okay, it said that it was at this point that corporate mission statements began to focus on environmentalism and sustainability. They also started to take racial and gender equality more seriously, right, where human resources became the vehicle to integrate these values into corporate culture. Hmm. So you started to see this starting to like really from like, hey, we have to have a bigger purpose than simply just drive profits over over everything, right? And that's where some of these issues like environmentalism, sustainability starts to come into place and the rise of HR. It'd be interesting right. to find out what actually... What caused that? What caused that? Well, I mean, you know, think about it politically, right? So from 1980 
through 2000, I mean, obviously you had 80s Bill... And, 80s and 90s, yeah. Er, 80s and early 90s were Republican-led governments. Yep. I mean, well, executive George branch Bush. for sure. Yeah. You had Reagan and you had George H.W. Uh-huh. Um, and then you had... You had Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton, coming in 90s, right, coming yeah. in um, at, at, to, towards the end of it. So I wonder if some of this, um, be, this focus beginning on environmentalism and sustainability was driven by some of that. I mean, I know that the environmentalism thing grew quite a bit during the 80s because of, you know, I mean, it was just like a point of opposition to some of the stuff that the administration was either seen to be doing, people thought they were doing it or they were doing it, but it was like, right. hey, this is why this has become important is because they had something to kind of contend with. And, and that 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 voice became much louder during those yeah. years. And I wonder if that's the same for these well, other issues. I, I don't recall when this happened, but when was it when like all of this started coming out around the, the hole in the ozone layer? Yeah, that was, what was 80s. That, that had that to be then, 80s. right? And look, and living even you know, late eighties, being, being in LA and seeing the amount of pollution that was in LA. I mean, California in general, LA specifically, took some like pretty drastic actions at that moment to really start cutting down the amount of pollution that was being created. And it, it did like you can see now the effects. Sure. While we still have our issues in California, is nowhere near less, yeah. what it was in the eighties, yeah. right? The amount of pollution. So maybe these forces, hmm. to your point, began to sort of play a factor. When maybe having states be a lot more aggressive about some of the environmentalism issues because of some of the the press that was coming out associated with the with the with this whole ozone layer, maybe that was you know part of the the the, the pop almost the pop culture that started to sort of seep this into the into business culture. Yep. Now phase two right was in two thousands right, and what's interesting about this phase is that relations at work became increasingly formalized. Right. There was new codes of conduct began to be established, addressing everything from bullying to harassment. At the same time, companies started to protect the interest of different stakeholders, going back to the stakeholder yeah. you know, conversation. Yeah. And there was a perceptible shift from shareholder to stakeholder capitalism. Now, you and I grew up in the corporate world in these years. I mean, this is yeah. really early, but I mean, for the most part, you know, from 2005 to, say, 15, we yeah, had, yeah. Uh, you know, a big run. Do you recall being conscious of any of these things? I, I, I definitely saw... Um, I would say without saying too much detail, because maybe not appropriate, but I, I, I heard all the stories when I joined media for the first time, mm-hmm. when I started at Univision, mm-hmm. I heard the stories right before I got there, what it was versus oh, yeah, by the time I got there. Yep. And when you hear some of these stories and it's, I think especially it wasn't just the Univision thing, the reality was no, media it was like, in general. It was like right? Wall Street, the first one. It was like, yeah, media in general. Oh, like if anyone has seen, um. Boiler Room. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, no, what's the name of the show? Mad Men. Mad Men. Right. Yeah. So you think about Mad Men, which is like, you know, in 90s, it was like 80s, the, it was like before that, Mad right? Men. Yeah, 80s and 90s, Actually, what, what those dynamics were in terms of how certain employees were treated, how women were treated, frankly, when this, in these work settings. Um, by the time I came in and was in that sort of work setting, there had definitely been a clear transition because I would hear some of the like, there's no way. There's like, no way that that like, There's no yeah. way that that happened. Like, how could that have happened? People, right. How could people like, be like sued, arrested? Blah, blah, blah. Like, it just seems so ridiculous. Right. I mean, I remember hearing about like, frankly, like, like in, in cases where like clients, like people like bringing them strippers and hookers, sure. like it's a way to like get, I mean, oh, it was that yeah, bad. Yeah. It was that bad. Immediately. So you were conscious of so it from, like, the, from, wow, the, from, the, from the context of contrasting it with what you were looking at. So correct. somebody said, Hey, this is the way it was. And you were like, this is Whoa. what it was. Yeah. This is what it was. Yeah. And we're like, no, that yeah. couldn't have been that way. Yeah. Like, how could that ever be like the kind of thing that was done? But oh, yeah, I remember that. For so sure. I think, mm-hmm. so part of this codification of conduct, it began to sort of kick in. So I could totally see this right Mm -hmm. and whether the years are exactly the same i'm sure it varied by company but i I definitely can see that there was this shift right now over the last 10 to 15 years um 
this is when corporations that really began to internalize their outlook of identity politics, right? This is you phase see, three. This is phase three, right? This is the kind of the phase that we're in now. You have much more CEOs embracing some of these woke causes, right? Mm-hmm. Which is leading to the rise in political activism of corporation, which became sort of self-consciously assertive and public. So not only were the companies much more, this is much more important for them, but before it used to be like, oh, you can invest through PACs or whatever, where, where corporations right. were keep actually- Keep some distance. Keep some yeah. distance. But I remember even at Univision, there was a PAC that was there, right? Uh, and you have many companies that were doing this, but now it went from that being in sort of in the in the in the background to now in the forefront, making it part of the brand, how it presents itself, of what issues it's supporting directly and or not. You, and it, I think it, that's all you know. And stuff you wouldn't have ever even thought of seeing. I mean, I look at what happened just at the last week or the last two weeks of uh, of June that the NFL launched the NFL is gay video. You saw that? Did you see that video? No. The NFL is gay. Because of um, oh the, the what's his name Malik defensive the, end I think the from, from the Raiders yeah yeah I, I don't know if it was just because of him but it was or if it was just June right but I'm sure but, there was some relation well, to that yeah th- no there definitely was a relation to him but I don't know if it was a June thing as well because you know June is is Pride Month um in the calendar I had not seen that in the marketing I, I, I didn't see that video it I mean it's, I mean, definitely saw his announcement when he when he talked about it was, it and, it was uh, done by uh, seventy two and Sunny the creative agency just down the road from us here in the studio oh, cool. and um and and that is the opening line is the NFL is gay. Almost like a, maybe a play on words about like, oh, that's gay. We used to say that coming up and now it's like, you know, it's, oh, it's an insult to say. But it was basically making the point, the NFL is gay, the NFL is trans, the NFL is all this stuff and it's for everyone. Oh, right, 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 but, right. I, but, I, but, I, but to your point about not just, um, what did you say? Not just assertive, but but public. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So th- this is, I think. A def- making assertive and public, right? Where well, you're now like, it really is in the forefront. And it's not in response to something. It's proactive, right? So in other words, it's not like yeah. somebody asked me, what do you feel about uh, gay players? It's that I actually have launched this campaign to be assertive and public about the position of the NFL. I mean, this like, you know, that. But don't you think that part of it is is also in response to like the many years that the NFL did not take this kind of stance of where you had Possibly. players that were gay that never came out while they were playing it had to be out of the left of the fact and it's a culture that really didn't allow for that I think it's very so possible so part of it is like mm-hmm. but my point is I only I only bring that up as evidence of this third phase in the yeah, sense yeah, for that sure. in the sense that maybe if they were in the first or second phase it would have dealt with this in a different way and now it is to your point assertive and public and it's yeah. very much leaning into these things proactively it yeah it is I mean it was, what's interesting about, about a position like that is to what degree, maybe this is the point that this article is trying to make, is to what degree is that really reflective of the fan base? Maybe it is, right? I don't know, like in, in this case. Uh, or is it one where the leadership of these organizations are trying to basically drive their own political agendas? I, I think there has to be... There's a little bit of... I think probably a little both. bit of both, but there has to be enough both. alignment because if there wasn't, the, also NFL is very, yeah. you know, uh, you know, astute to say, hey, here are the things that we're going to lean in pretty hard on. Here are the things that we're going to just... Eh, just kind of like back off from it a little bit and not talk about too much because we think it, it, you know the, the the fans won't respond to it well. Yeah, I think that they're definitely towing the line on this one though because I think this one will you know will and has gotten backlash and a lot of it may be silent. You're not going to see it on social, but people just maybe not deciding to tune in. But they're doing it anyway, right? Yeah. This is the point about the assertive. It also it's like, the timing of it, right? I mean, it's also probably smart to do it when it's off right. season. But but I guess I, the, not during season exactly. And but the point I'm trying to make specifically is like remember Jordan, what he was famously you know either lauded or ridiculed for, depending on which position you saw about the about the you know Republicans buy a lot of shoes too, and yeah. his thing that he was not going to go pick a side because at the end of the day, I'm neutral. I'm making a shoe and I'm right, an athlete right, and I want right. everybody to see me. Yeah. 
That's my point is the part that's changed. I believe that, definitely that, has changed, I believe that sure. the NFL knew full well, knows full well, that there are people who either A, are straight up, don't like gay people, got it, or are like, I, I'm fine with gay people. I just don't want to mix that with sports because to me, they're things that shouldn't be together. Or maybe there's somewhere in between where they're like, look, I've got my own positions on homosexuality, but that's neither right. here nor there ultimately. So I think there's a variety of perspectives. My point is that in the past, that maybe they're questioning about, should we do this? Them not knowing what the, what it could do would keep them from doing this. Now I think they, you they're, lean, they're going. Lean, yeah, your yeah. your default, some, your bias is to go forward. Well, you, your bias is to have a stance. I think part of it is that. Maybe right? And to be more that, public yeah. about those stances, yeah, right? Yeah. Now, I think what's interesting, just to go a little bit off topic, but what I found really interesting is we, we saw the backlash of how people, especially in the context of sport, there was a lot of backlash this past year where people saying that sports become too political, especially with the number of leagues that, that were very assertive in their position as it relates to uh, Black Lives Matter as a, as a movement, right? More than an organization, but as a movement, especially in response to everything that happened, you know, with George Floyd, et cetera. People were kept on saying, like, oh, you know, we don't want that in sports. We want to just, like, just focus on sports. And that's part of the reason why ratings are down. And But the reality, though, that I think has happened since is I don't see any of the leagues backing down from being less assertive in their political position. As a matter of fact, the argument that you would just that we would just make based on, based on what you just said is that it's like, actually doubling down on even more issues that are that are more public as they are. And even potentially more controversial. Yeah. See what I'm saying? Like, yeah. like it, I don't see that backing down. At all, at I don't. All. I don't either, and I don't know what what changes that, if anything. I think that's just sort of the the era to to quote this article that we're in right now is very much that. I don't know what phase four is, if there is one, but right. I don't see it going from phase three back to phase two. I don't either, and I think I, I am super curious in the case of this one. I, I didn't know. I didn't know they had done that, but I'm super curious to see like what data are they looking at. If they did, I'm assuming they did because NFL is pretty pretty good about that. Um, and saying, hey, maybe this is a very, it's a calculated risk that even if there is some backlash from some of our fans, well, we're playing this for the future. We're playing to the future fans. And if we don't find a way to make our sports more, inter not entertaining, but more um, accessible, more aligned with our future fans, that we're going to have a problem. Because the guy who's sitting there in his 50s that is going to be very upset and bitter about this, the reality is that guy is not going to be around. After a while, true. And I'm less concerned with that without guys. See what I'm saying? Like, I, yeah, I think I there's some level of that that I do. But, but you know, they have to, you know, that, that I think is happening. But to that point, I know we got to move on to, to courage or cringe. But to to the point you just made about, I wonder what kind of analytics and data they're looking at. Here's the other thing, which mm -hmm. I think is really important to, to to consider. I had a conversation with somebody last week who used to work for PNG for many years, and he's on an advisory board with me of a of a nonprofit, and he was trying mm -hmm. to give some advice, and he brought up a really interesting point that I hadn't thought about. And he said that P&G used, um, used to consider what they called shadow markets in their product planning and product design. And what that meant was they were marketing their product to a particular group, but they knew that another group really liked their product for reasons that either they didn't, A, wanted to lean into, B, agreed with, C, didn't think it was a long-term future of the product. Right. And while they wouldn't communicate with those people directly – they still considered the fact that they were there in the things that they did, product especially, right? Formulations, right. all this other kind of stuff. I thought that was super interesting, and it would not surprise me. By the way, that applies to a whole lot of categories, too. I'm sure. And, but it would not surprise me at all if the NFL 
sure, put that video out. But Jesus, you and I both know, you put that video out, you can have a thousand people see it. You can have a million people see it. You know, you can target who sees it. You can retarget who sees it. Sure. So there is... You can have your cake and eat it too. Put it out so you can send it to the press release and have the New York yeah, Times write a nice article that's, about that's it. that's hard to control in this case. It is, but what I'm saying is you, in terms of putting paid stuff behind it, boosting, sure, amplifying. Sure, sure, sure. You could do something. You could do... You can yeah, totally minimize. You, you can, can do what the White House does sometimes when they want to release something that maybe that they don't want pe- to be picked up. They send it out at Friday at 6 p.m. They know that right, even though right, it's going right. to get out, even though it's going to get out, it's going to get out to a... But smaller but in this, in this portion state of, of the market in the state of culture wars that's the kind of thing that I'm, I'm maybe it did happen I just didn't see it like I could totally see Fox News Sean Hannity like all those guys like jumping all over this thing I'm and sure like, they did see I'm what I'm sure saying like so so there is I agree with you there's ways to try to like target the the message and what think of what you're speaking to but when you put out a statement like that that is probably gonna, that does carry some controversy I could also see it. You know, going wow. So there is a level of risk that if they don't if they don't calculate it well, they could get. By the way, totally hurt. off the off topic, uh-huh. but just since I brought it up, remember we when, our UFO show. Uh-huh. The report came out. Yeah, hey, I know. And, and the and the report uh-huh. was released Friday at six p.m. Oh, that's, that's funny. Yeah, no, I've actually I've, I've, <laughs> I haven't read the report, but I have listened to. I, I listened to a podcast about of, it. Yeah, people yeah. talking about it. Yeah. Um, but and by the way, so this pushback, which is really interesting, kind of what we're talking about here, is that. There is a clear shift in attitudes towards corporate power by consumers, and especially as it relates to their political leaning, right? Mm-hmm. So there was a, um, as reported by the Financial Times, there was a report that basically said the share of Republicans saying they trust corporate America. This is super interesting. Went from 53% in October of 2020 to 39% by May of 2021. So that's a pretty short period of time. And that's all, by the way, that's how much of that do you think is just directly tied to Trump being in office or not? I think so. I think it's pretty high, right? But I think all of these roads also inevitably traverse the social media neighborhood. This is also a big deal. This is a lot about Facebook and Google and Twitter. This is a lot about- Yeah, that is. You're right. It it, it is. So so some of that, I think having, kicking off Trump out from the platform, from the platforms, not just platform, I'm sure is a big reason why there's such a drastic drop here. Associated with this. Yeah, completely agree. There is, but I think it's also, um, we talked about this earlier. It's this idea that in the 80s, since we were talking about the 80s, it was, you know, you went to a certain school, you had your job at Goldman Sachs for a period, you got to see the world, then you, you know, then you had a couple kids and you voted Republican. That was the thing. But now it's like that descriptor of who the person is that has the power in the corporate seat, driving the big corporation, that increasingly is the kind of progressive person. And I think that the, that, the voters, to yeah. use that word, are like keying on that because that stat jumped out at me. The fact yeah, that, that like yeah, they used to stat. always be the 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 the, re- the Republican hallmark was like, oh, big business and business this, and it's like now it's just not as easy to assume that. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think the the shift from profits only to being profits and impact or social or. Um, definitely, I think, uh, turns a lot of people that are, have much more of those conservative values off because the reality is much, as we talked about earlier, most of those values that these corporations are leaning into tend to be much are more not, progressive issues, right? So exactly. if they were the opposite, I think it would be the, the opposite. I, I, I'm I sure it would so be. It's, like, it's just, it's just the way it so is. Too. Well, well uh, just to wrap up this part of the conversation, this, basically this piece by Frank Ferretti, you know, he makes a case that woke capitalism is is actually, in his mind, a bigger threat to democracy than cancel culture on campuses, mm-hmm. right? And part of this reason we, we kind of talked about a little bit earlier is that, in his mind, corporate power through their economic muscle and ability to impact people's livelihoods through jobs, et cetera, 
can actually have a real impact on political institutions and lawmaking, right? And and I, I it's like very, putting pressure yeah. on 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 governments, putting pressure to like change policy. Um, and by the way, even as a guy who I probably would agree more than not on a number of these issues, I kind of get that point. Like that's not a insignificant yeah. point that they're making here. Um, I think there's that it a, could have like a real real impact. I think there's a very significant macro level evolution that is happening with respect to a lot of these kind of organs of power that have historically been associated one way that have now evolved. I definitely see that. I do think that the corporation or business in general, especially technology-based business, have an outsized impact in the conversation now. Yeah. For a lot of reasons, not the least of which is they can kind of, you know, direct and sway and suppress and uh, and amplify a lot of things. Um, and so I just, I think it's very difficult to, you may not go all the way that, that, that this author goes to in terms of the outcome, mm-hmm. but it's hard to find fault in at least his initial thesis, right? Which is there's a lot more power that's accumulated in these different areas. And as a result, consumer and other, you know, expectations are evolving as a result of that, right? So Yeah, I, I agree. Well, once again, the, the phases and how we got to this point, I think one of the underlying things, it doesn't say specifically, but as I thought about reading his piece, is that part of that shift also comes from the more corporations that focus on the, the rights of the employees, right? I think the more you're going you're gonna to naturally have to see the shift towards those corporations having much more in line with whatever those employees believe in, yeah. right? And you see that part of it reflected because you see, you know, now we're in a situation where it was 20, 30 years ago, people like stayed in the same job for the next 20 years. The, the less of that happened, when people jump around, then it's like, okay, what are now you employer going to do to keep me around? Because I have the ability to move but, around much, much more. So I think even mm-hmm. that also plays a factor. Don't you us. think that also, though, it's, it's also part of the dynamic that led us in a way to start this show, which is the idea of the spheres of your persona that could be once compartmentalized have now kind of melts yeah, together. Yeah, yeah. So, so like too, as yeah. an employee, I'm almost like. I'm part of your family, like literally, like now you're really concerned about me and every other aspect and, right. and I'm living my life, personal, public, professional, societal, like all within the context of work in a way that I never had before. Mm-hmm. So it kind of follows that the corporation would then be considering all these things that they never had to consider before. Yeah, Before yeah. it used to be, did you punch in? Right. You put your time card in the right way. Now it's like, oh yeah, you know, I have this issue or I need this resource or I have this need. And it's like... It's all, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? Like oh, the walls yeah. have kind of come down. So maybe some of this is like, you know, maybe we shouldn't blame the, the corporations as much. Maybe they're responding to a need. I don't know. I think but a part of they are though, because if, the need, if, if consumers and employees did not believe this, it would be very hard just to have these tyrants of, of, of industry be the ones that drive all this, the social change. Right. Fascinating. More to be said. R- really interesting, really interesting piece. So if you get a chance to read that, like, please do so. It's a really interesting piece. Spiked. Nobody in the UK can be wrong because they've got that accent. So there's, a, you know, <laughs> automatically uh, much more credible. All right. Yeah. So moving on to Courage or Cringe, we've got Robin D'Angelo. We've got a hammer-throwing Olympian. And we've got the NBA Finals with their new controversy. Thor. Lots going on. That's right. Thor or Thor S in Thor, this, Thor uh, in this, uh, What's in this the, case. What's the name of um, the new character? Uh, not new. She's um, Natalie Portman. She's supposed to be like the new Thor. Oh, really? It's a woman Thor. Yeah, yeah. I don't know the name of the character. Oh, man, I should know this. Uh, anyways, female was, Thor. That's yeah, not what it is, Thor. right? It's not. It's uh, that's a specific name. Natalie Portman. But anyways, let's uh, yeah, let's get into Courage or Cringe. So, first piece, Courage or Cringe. Author claims that white progressives can cause the most daily harm to people of color. Mm-hmm. That seems pretty controversial. Mm-hmm. So, as covered by CNN, Robin D'Angelo, who is uh, best known for writing the book White Fragility 
has come out with a new book called Nice Racism, How Progressive White People Perpetuate Racial Harm. Great title. Great. Yeah. I was like, if you want yeah. to sell some books, man, this is the way <laughs> to do it. She said great, man. I was just, sure, that that I thing mean, got, got pretty tested, I think, before they got, came up with that title. That's like, bam. Uh, now, in it, the she de- yeah, exactly. She delivers a systematic takedown of what she calls well-meaning whiteness mm-hmm. and how well-intentioned white people unwittingly reinforce racism. By the way, for those that don't know, Robin D'Angelo is actually white. So she, you know, just in case. She doesn't actually mention it in the book, but, you know, I see a lot of uh, small dogs with sweaters when I read her, <laughs> when I read her work. That's all I can say. So I identify. Uh, I identify. Exactly. Um, now, in the book, she makes... Um, a startling claim that white progressives can cause the most daily harm to people of color. Now she writes, we are the ones with a smile on our faces who undermine black people daily in ways both harder to identify and easier to, to deny. I mean, I, I cannot help. You'll see, you'll hear this in my thoughts, but I cannot, what I'm reading this, right? It's like, I probably yeah. agree with maybe the sky is blue with Robin D'Angelo, right? But right. I'm telling you, she gave voice to a lot of things that I've struggled to explain on this show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, there was definitely things that she was saying here that I've, I've, I've definitely heard you speak to. But I, it's not like I knew she was going to write the book. Right. I, mean? I should have written it. There you go. Now, to the degree that we see ourselves as not racist, we are going to be very defensive about any suggestion to the contrary. Yeah. We will see no further action needed because we see ourselves as outside the problem. Bingo. That, that's what that's we've talked really about. That's a key point. Yeah, key yeah. point. Now, in the, in the book, she also explores how a culture of niceness protects racism, how white progressives try to awoke one another, and why anti-racist education can sometimes create more efficient racists. Which is, like, fascinating to that me. That is, yeah. So, in, as part of this piece, what they did is they did an actual interview with her, when she mm-hmm. basically got into a couple of different issues. So, I'll just highlight a few of these, yeah. and then we'll just talk about it, because I thought it was really interesting. No. Sure. So, the first, in terms of how she defines, actually, nice racism, right? Now, what she says, look, in systematic racism, there are both explicit and subtle acts of racism, right? So for her, nice racism, right? Nice racism is the more subtle action on that continuum, right? Now, it's the form of racism that well-meaning progressive white people who believe in racial justice do not deny the systematic racism exists in a really enact, right? So this is and this is a really interesting point. It's like, hey, they're not these are tend to be what we, most people consider allies, but in doing so. They're also not recognizing some of the systematic racism that has been embedded in them in their own ideology. And almost like by, without even trying to are actually part of the problem as well, right? Now, in giving an example she actually talks about, she points to the people who feel the urgency to establish that they're not racist. Like, like as a starting point, she actually gives us a really interesting story about herself mm-hmm. where she <laughs> met this like black couple. And she starts like, spewing all the things that she's like glad to be like with right. this black couple. Talking yeah. about all the racist white people that are out there. They look at her like, I just came back from the uh, NAAC uh, mixer. Yeah, NAACP exactly. mixer. <laughs> right. You're pointing so, to all your credentials and, she, and accolades. And she basically does that as a way to point to the problem even within herself, right? Right. Um, now, she says, although by living in a country with systematic with systematic racism, it's inevitable that we've been shaped by that system and therefore internalized racist ideology, right? Mm-hmm. And basically people that may not recognize that they are part of the, of the actual problem. Now, her take on anti-racist education, which, you know, once again, was like, can, can, how can this create more efficient racists? Well, what she says is, first of all, she actually yeah, supports it, right? As an educator, she supports it. So she's a professor. I forget now what university is. Maybe Seattle. I forget what, where, where she is. But No, she's East Coast, I think. Is it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so she supports, supports it, right? Anti-racist education. But she's also concerned that if we stop there and it's not sustained or followed up, it will give a superficial understanding, meaning behavior will not actually change even when people are saying the right thing. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, it's a really interesting thing. But I think her take on it, I, I, it was definitely very different than what I thought she was going to say in terms of how this makes more efficient racist. Um, now, she's also not looking to just evoke 
white guilt, right? She wants to turn that guilt into into reparative action. Otherwise, it just functions to excuse an action and to pressure everyone around you to take care of your of your feelings, right? It's to make you feel better. Right? By the way, you were right. She um, she is in Seattle. Seattle? Okay. Yeah, she's a professor in uh, Seattle. Uh, now, her take on political pushback versus critical race theory, right? Now, she herself doesn't consider as being a critical race theorist, right? But the term itself seems to now, and as she says, to now be a stand-in for systematic racism, which, of course, she believes in. Because like her whole premise of the book is about that, right? Mm-hmm. Now, she points to two things. One is that the progress of the BLM movement is going to cause this, this resistance. So part of in her mind, this resistance comes from that reaction to the progress that the BLM movement had over, over, over last year. And that the second point is that she seeing, sees racism as being a highly adaptive system and it adapts to these challenges. So they, she sees basically as this pushback mm-hmm. as another form of racism that people sort of try to veil it under, under a, different, uh, right. a, diff- a, diff- a different sort of strain, right? Now, lastly, she says, there are people in my life, both white and black, that I trust dearly and that I have what I call accountability relationships. What I am clear about more than ever as a result of this last year is that absolutely no one can always get it right on race. So you have to find that center within yourself and your integrity to keep doing what you believe. I surround myself with people with a deep understanding of systematic racism, and I talk through these challenges. Right. Mm-hmm. So... Courage or cringe? Can white progressives actually cause the most daily harm to people of color, or just a good controversial soundbite to sell a new book? <laughs> well, she's definitely going to sell some books. That's yeah. for dang sure. Look, so that's Charlie. Um, all right. So, like I said, I think Robin D'Angelo and I might agree on a few things. We might agree on the fact that you know two atoms of hydrogen and one of oxygen make water. We might agree on the fact that the sky is blue. We might agree on the fact that water's wet. Aside from that, not a lot we're probably going to agree with, right? Okay. And I actually believe, I don't believe she's, I, I think she's a well-meaning person, okay? I don't mm-hmm. believe she objectively wishes anybody harm or disadvantage, but nevertheless, I think her ideologies in general do directly or indirectly inflame racism, if you want to call it that, or race fixation, because they kind of posit a world that people are their colors before they are themselves. Her entire premise, just in general, boils down to the fact that the onus seems to be solely on white America to bring about structural and economic change, except for white America can't because they're white and they can never change for unfixable and immutable reasons. So it's like, to me, it seems like an entirely circular thing at the end. But having said all that, what I think she posits here. By the way, I don't think I'm prepared to make that argument because I've not read her stuff closely enough to to give you the counter argument. All right. Well, I'm giving you this is obviously look. I'm being unfair to her because you can't summarize a person's entire you know um, body of work in mm-hmm. five seconds. But having said all that, what she posits here and how she posits it deserves kudos. I'm a courage on this. Okay, which may surprise you, mm-hmm. may surprise me. Because insofar as it gives a voice to something that I've, that I've told you about many times on this show and that I've been feeling for years, that the most kind of race-oriented in a way that is almost invisible, but that causes a tremendous amount of, of harm is progressive liberal – or progressive liberals and progressive liberal ideology to some extent. I know we're, a little bit of a spoiler alert, but just look at the story we're going to cover in a bit with, with ESPN. And again, I'm not not going to spoil it, but but here is the in the crux of this dilemma with with going on with these ESPN sportscasters is that one of them made an assumption that the reason that somebody's going to get this gig is because of oh they've got it you know where somebody's trying to fix a diversity problem. 
when it could just be that they're actually a really good sportscaster and that they want to make a decision for that person instead of you. The assumption that was being made was not being made by somebody living in Biloxi, Mississippi or Alabama with a Confederate flag. It was made by somebody who voted for Hillary and has all the right accolades and supports all the right causes. So that's an example of it. And again, there's many, many more. So I, I think that the fact that she gives voice to this, it is super provocative, which I really like. Mm-hmm. It has people talk about these different things. And I've actually lived this and seen it in my own experience. Look, in my line of work, what you and I have been involved with, we've seen it. I've seen it and felt it in conversations where, hey, it's nice of the Latino guys talking about Latino media. But the moment you start getting out of your lane, it's like, look, I'm not really going to pay attention to what you're saying, right? that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. So I ultimately, I came down on courage for this. I like the fact that she brought it up. I like the fact that it's sort of counter to the existing narrative. It certainly gives, you know, some shape to things that I've encountered and that I've been trying to kind of define around words. And ultimately, I think it's good to have this as part of the conversation. So for me, I came down on courage with what uh, what she came out with. Cool. Um, Robin D'Angelo, I mean, I don't know. I was definitely uh, on the fence on on her argument. I think to me, part of the reason why I struggle with it, and I'll, I'll tell you where I ended up. But let me just let me just the part of my struggle is this this comment, this issue of, of of saying that white progressives cause the most daily harm to people of color. Now that point is like relative to what is what I what I what I sort of think about that. Right? Mm-hmm. Is that when you say this, I agree with the fact that, and part of I think what you talk about quite a bit is like that kind of racism is really hard to pin down. It's much harder to sort of to to stamp out, right? Because it's much easier when someone walks in with the Confederate flag, with the with the hood on of, sure, of the clan, is like calls your name, yeah, yeah. Like those are really easy to tell. They're a problem, and they create a lot of issues, but they're much easier to pick out, right? Almost like think about a guerrilla war versus versus other types, right? For sure. So I can understand that. So maybe I'm getting way too hung up on that creating the most harm. I think the part that I do agree with her on is this idea that, look, the reality is that when we think about racism, it is one that is, it is a spectrum. And in that spectrum, you have, even with well-intention, I said this earlier to somebody else, I'm like, hey, even good intentions, bad things can happen. And I think there's a piece here that she's bringing up that is, in, that basically speaks to that point, is that even people who have very good intention, when you see yourself as being completely outside of that problem, then it's much easier to basically say, that's not my issue, that's somebody else's issue. And he's going to point the finger. And to that point, she's saying, no, 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 point that finger right back to yourself and know that whether you think of this or not, you also are part of the issue that has created this dynamic. Because when we talk about systematic racism, it actually does have an impact with everyone, whether or not you're for it or not. I mean, we were just talking about earlier um, uh, about this response of these CEOs against these voting laws that are happening in some of these southern states. Well, the reality is whether you're for those those laws or not, once those laws get passed, you do get a certain kind of benefit that is part of that. And if some of the, the, the cause that maybe we agree or not, but as I view it, some of the reason why some of those laws are being passed is specifically to try to undermine some of the, the more diverse vote in some of those places mm-hmm. as a result of literally having like a whole lying campaign about that this was an actual problem. Well, whether or not, once again, if that's if we if we get if we attribute that to systematic racism, let's just just follow with me. If, they, if that's actually attributed to systematic racism, whether or not you were someone that were for it or not, you still benefit from it. So that's sort of a microcosm of the bigger issue that I think she's trying to bring up. So that's why at the end of it, I'm actually courage on this, even though that point that. 
the ones that we really have to be worried about you is the white liberals. You thought she overstated it. Can I, can yeah, I, yeah, I, th- I thought she overstated it. And I think part of it is like, yeah, I see it a little bit more as a, a great headline to sell a book. Can, can I offer this a little something uh-huh. for your calculus, though? Uh, and, I, and I understand, I respect the fact that maybe she, she overstated it. But just in in her, def- not in defense, but to, to lay a little I, bit of I, weight. I love the fact that I haven't used the fan Robin DeAngelo. That's awesome. Is, uh, I'm telling this you. Great. So, this but, great. But, but here, just, just <laughs> something for you to consider in your calculus. Yeah. Um, the number, if you if you were saying ca- cause the most, and you said what does that compare to? So let's compare it to an obvious, explicit, you know, racist kind of wears right, it right. proudly, comes in and says a bunch of racial epithets and that kind of thing. Yes, they're much easier to spot. My guess is, and I think I could probably bear this out pretty well with with a number of different sources of evidence. But my guess is that's also a much smaller number of people who fall into that explicit category. And number two is based on everything we just talked about. How much power do they really have compared to the people who may be in this kind of, you know, more progressive camp, especially if what we talked about in our deep dive is true, that a lot of the halls of power, at least in the 21st century, reside in these bigger corporations, which seem to be oriented that way. So the fact that it's bigger, I think, realistically, and also much Mm -hmm. more powerful relative to the people who subscribe to this kind of racism, if we're calling them both racism, I think you can make a good argument that it's the most damaging because of those things. Yeah, I I can understand that point. I just, when I think about what we just went through the last four years, I would not put, put President Trump under the progressive nice racism category. Uh, I would put him in the other category, right? So there is, while I, I understand where you're coming from, and I, and I think maybe you're probably right to that extent, I also think that there are real impact that are created by people that are much more forward about their intent. And look, and this is why maybe I get hung up on the whole, you know, all these voting laws that were literally are, are putting being put in place to make the voting more safe. But the argument of making it more safe is based on a lie that there was mass fraud. It's like, I, I, I equate it to like, what if President Trump had said that, you know, that the reason why he lost the election was because unicorns had come in and stolen his election? Mm-hmm. We would have now laws in some states where we're banning unicorns from stealing elections. It was like anti-unicorn, anti-unicorn laws. laws. Like, yeah. like literally that's what we would have. And that to me is like so ridiculous. Like, right. so you're th- saying that's you're, the part you're, that you're really the like premise I, is flawed. And yeah, therefore. but I, but I think but I, but I definitely believe. And her argument is actually a really good one. Like, hey, look upon yourself. And by the way, and I think as much, I mean, I, look, I get it from a perspective of saying white progressives, but it's not just white progressives, right? It's like a lot of us that fall in that category that, hey, even if we consider ourselves allies, like, do we actually fall in the, in the case where, look, I would say is being Latino in the U.S., look, there's plenty of Latinos that are racist. I have family members who are racist. They may not consider themselves racist because they happen to be dark enough, but they are. Mm-hmm. They are about basically anyone else that is not Latino like them or Mexican like them. Right, like there, there is a lot of that going on. I think we are always too quick of pointing to the other side of what other people are doing. I think that's true, and I think and there's I another think that's this, I think she's kind of calling to that, so that I appreciate. So we have to get to the next, the next one because I think it's a case study in this. Okay, but I think the other thing that this rests on is the difference between a kind of descriptive, abstract, you know, intellectual understanding of what things are. And a practical roll up your sleeves, interact mm-hmm. with another human version of what this is. I think there's a lot of people who, and again, we're going to see it in the next story. Right. A lot of people who are like, I believe in this, just don't bring it to my house. <laughs> we talked you know about this with homelessness, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and homelessness too. It's a great example. I believe yeah, yeah, yeah. in this, I'll yeah. vote for it, I'll give yeah, to the no, cause, I'll vote for the candidate, but don't bring it in front of my house. Don't right. bring it in front of my house. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that in this argument fair. as well. Cool. All right. So that, that was a good one. Uh, courage or cringe? Hammer thrower turns away from the U.S. flag during the award ceremony in protest. 
while qualifying to represent the U.S. in the Olympics. Anybody who throws a 20-pound hammer should be listened to at <laughs> exactly. all times. <laughs> like legit people are here. So as reported by the Washington Examiner, this past week, Gwen Berry qualified for the Olympics by coming in third in the hammer throw. But it wasn't so much her accomplishment of making the team that got her the attention. Rather, it was her actions during the award ceremony that created the controversy. Now, during the anthem, first place finisher Deanne Price and second place finisher Brooke Anderson stood with their hands over their heart while facing the flag. Barry, however, shifted to face the crowd, held a ceremony of uh, flowers by her side, and eventually held up and covered her head with a t-shirt that read, Activist Athlete. Now, she had previously protested during the national anthem and said that playing the Star Spangled Banner during the medal ceremony was a setup. That was done on purpose because she had reportedly been told that it would be played before they stood on the podium during Saturday's qualifier in Oregon, right? Now, she said, and I quote, they had enough opportunities to play the national anthem before we got up there. I was thinking about what I should do. Eventually, I stayed there and I swayed. I put my shirt over my head. Now, there was, of course, immediate pushback, right? So Texas Senator Ted Cruz uh, said, why does the left hate America? Sure, we have our faults, but no nation in the history of the world has liberated more people from captivity has lifted more out of poverty, has bled more for freedom, or has blessed more with abundance. God bless America. There was also Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker, who said, what is wrong with people? Growing up, everyone stood for the, for the American flag. Didn't matter your politics, race, sex, income, religion, um, or religion. Everyone stood for the flag. It was one of those civic rituals that brought us together. It still should today. By the way, there was also other folks that like called for her to get uh, uh, taken off from the team. And this, I forget not the name of, I think he's a senator. Mm-hmm. He's um, like, I think he's in a wheelchair and has um, like a, a knife patch. I forget now. Do you know, oh, you know what I'm talking Dan, about? Dan uh, Crenshaw? Yeah, probably. I think yeah. it was him who also called for like for her to get removed from, Dan the, Crenshaw, from the team. Dan Crenshaw, United States representative from Texas 2nd Congressional that's right, District. That's right, that's right. Yeah. Now, not in a wheelchair, though. I think he's just got the eye, doesn't is he? Just, okay. The I wheelchair is um, the governor of Texas. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, Barry responded, thank you. I never said I hated the country. People try to put words in my mouth, but they can't. This is why I speak out. I love my people. Mm-hmm. My purpose and my mission is bigger than sports. I'm here to represent those who died due to systematic racism. That's the important part. That's what I'm doing. That's what I'm here today. So courage or or cringe, U.S. athlete using her platform to raise awareness of unsettled social issues or activists undercutting her own efforts by letting controversy overshadow the message. If you see the video, it was clear that she kind of didn't know what to do when she yeah, yeah, was Yeah, I saw the video. It, it, it definitely was. You could tell she was, when she said awkward. that she was like set up. Yeah, she was definitely not expecting for that. She to definitely play. wasn't, and I can understand how she would feel that way. Right. Because when you feel that everybody's looking at you and you don't know how to behave, you don't know where to put your hands, it's a very awkward feeling. Right. And so she probably was legitimately surprised by that. Yeah, I think so. I don't think she should have been. I doubt highly, highly that it was done on purpose as a I setup. Agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, as well. And I also think you know it's kind of sad that nobody knows who won that competition this woman Deanne Price because we're all talking about the, the this this woman uh, the third first place all, we, we actually I actually said both the first place and second place you said that you and clear. me know that it, Deanna Price won the gold <laughs> no, or and this was even it's the qualifier the yeah, qualifier yeah, but yeah. you won first place yeah you first know. place yeah but um, look I don't doubt that her conscience told her to do this um, and and I respect that but we also have to form our conscience as well, right? And I think she should have realized kind of where she was and who she was. And and this is where I think it's a little bit different than, say, the Colin Kaepernick, Kaepernick stuck in, stuff and all that. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's chosen to represent the United States. That mm-hmm. is Team USA, right? You're not like the Seattle Seahawks or the Marlins or whatever, right? 
And the other thing is, from what I read in the piece, they published when the anthem would be played. They literally gave a schedule and, and, and said, here's when you can expect it. So the fact that she was confused, you know, maybe legitimately she was, but is that an oversight on her part as opposed to an oversight of this organization, which is being put in the light of being some kind of big, bad, vilified thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I also, I think this is part, this is kind of fruit of the poison tree for me, though, because this is because the, uh, what's it called? The IOC, the uh, International Olympic Committee or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They reversed an earlier decision mm-hmm. that said that they were not allowed to protest on, on the podium yeah. and said, no, now it is okay for you to uh, um, you know, protest on the podium. Yeah, I, saw, I, saw that. I disagree with that precisely because it leads us to these kind of things. And what's, and it's not going to be, you know, in my experience, at least what I've seen, it's not going to be spread out evenly across all these different causes. Like I can imagine again, somebody up there, I don't know, like, you know, with like an ultrasound machine trying to show an image of a baby in the womb and saying, I'm pro-life. It would, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't work. Right. And I think that, look, there's sports have uniforms. You and I've talked about this before. Yeah. There is a certain uniformity that is part of the sports experience. That's why we have uniforms. What if somebody decided, I don't want, I want to play for the Yankees, but I don't want to have stripes on my uniform. Mm -hmm. Like, that's coming potentially. And what do you say then? Give me a principled reason why you would say you're against that. Like, well, we need to have all the players look the same. Yeah, why? That's not how I feel. So all this does is just open up that that thing. Nobody's saying you can't protest. Nobody's saying you can't protest about a variety of different things or places, but just some things have to be sacrosanct. I do agree with, I don't know who it was. Was it, um, who did you say? Uh, was it uh, Scott Walker? What, what was the tweet? These The second tweet that you read. Oh, the second tweet was a uh, governor from, Wis- uh, from Wisconsin, not a governor. Walker. Yeah, 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 yeah. Walker, Walker. I do agree. Yeah, Senator from Walker. I yeah. do agree with what he said, that there were some things you know, back in the day that were kind of inviolable, that were something that we just agreed to agree on. And, you know, having the flag and doing certain things. And it wasn't like, do you vote Democrat or Republican? Do you believe in this and that? But it was about, you know, just having that expectation, right? Um, and and look, at the end of the day, I, I, the, the way that I think about it is, when we think about like Martin Luther King, he talked about the fact that we had not lived up to our ideals, but he didn't criticize the ideals, right? And I think that when you're on Team USA and you can't even stand for the anthem, like at that particular moment on the podium, I just think that, look, I support her, her right to protest. I think that's the wrong place to do it. And I think that um, – and that's neither here nor there because they've allowed it now. Right. What I think is now in question is um, you know, people's reaction to this. Well, guess what? You're going to have a reaction to this now every time somebody does this. Of course. And it's going to yeah. minimize the things maybe that you want to be talking about. But it's really – I blame the IOC. I wish I could give a cringe to the IOC yeah, for yeah, doing yeah. this as opposed to this young woman but, but, but who's your, a great athlete. But your argument sounds very similar to the exact same reason why everyone's said about Colin Kaepernick, right? It's like, you can protest, just don't do it here. Just keep it out of here. But but don't, but don't. I guess my, my biggest distinction is what we're talking about. We're talking about your team is the USA. It is America. It has its song. Right. Now maybe write a new one and say, get that one really popular. But like, it's not a surprise. This is not a surprise. This is the not- surprise part was, is interesting. Um, the how so she protested. Yeah, yeah, just, no, yeah, yeah, I got you. Yeah. But if she decided, let's say she decided to kneel during the during the the during the the national anthem, yeah. would that be? You think that reaction is supposed to be merited in terms of being the wrong place, the wrong kind of pro- protest to have? To be to be clear, my cringe is on what we're talking about, which is her saying this was a setup. It wasn't a setup. I don't believe right. in that for a second. 
But yeah, putting uh, putting the setup aside because I agree with you. Yeah. I, I don't think it was a setup. But no, let's. Yeah. I think the well, at least what we talked about, like the actual doing this, the, I, the actual. So let me sep- let me separate that. I think that the cringe belongs on the IOC. I disagree with their their ruling or whatever uh-huh. they did, their reversal. Because I just I just don't agree with it. I think it invites all these things. I think it's going to get progressively larger, louder, more distracting. And I think that there should yeah. be some things that are sacrosanct. So my my um, beef is mostly with them. Having said that, like I said, I actually um, uh, sympathize a bit with her because it was clear that she was confused that it was being sure. played. Then she shouldn't have been, but it yeah, well, she, yeah. Was, yeah, she was. And she acted out in whatever way she thought was appropriate. And I believe that she acted inconsistent with their conscience. I also think, again, that we have to form our consciences. So we can't just like follow what we think. We have to like study these issues, read them, understand them. And so anyway, my, my beef is really less with her, but I do have to go cringe on the fact that she said it was set up. It wasn't. I don't believe yeah, yeah. that. I don't and think so, so ultimately that's where I'm at. But my biggest con- complaint is with the IOC or whatever the right. body but, but, is. But, it, but then the result of that is that you just don't agree that athletes should be able to protest, even in whatever form of protest, during the national anthem, if you're there to represent the U.S. I think that, no. I is think, that fair? I think that the podium receiving a medal for representing the country and the country's song playing I don't think that's the place to do it. And I also, you know, I, look, uh, that, that's, I think, my bottom line. That I just, I, it, it just, it strikes me as, as just the wrong place, the wrong message to send at the wrong time. And, and I think it's unfair to the other athletes, too. You're up there with two other people, two of them who beat you, by the way, and everyone is talking about you. So... I, sure. I, just, I mean, I but think, you also beat a whole bunch of other people. So the fact I, that I get two it. people beat you is not. Really I get it. But the two people that beat you are on the on the on the thing in front of you. You know, you know what I'm saying? It's like we're not, and we're not talking about them as much as we're talking about. Yeah, her. but you wouldn't make a different argument if she had won first place. That that, is, that has no relevance in this conversation. Well, it does to if the extent she, if she that she first place and did the exact same thing. Turn I, around, no, no, put I would. The, her no, 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 shirt no, 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 no. I, I would. It just wouldn't have the same degree of emphasis because you're still there representing not just the country, but also because you're standing on the same place with two other people. You're in a way de facto imp- impacting them. So just sure. fully out of respect, I would just say, look, you know, I, I would at least have talked to them. Who knows? Maybe she did. I would have said, hey, I plan on doing this. Is that cool with you guys? Because it's going to take a lot of like attention from you at your moment. That maybe you want it to be very solemn. Maybe you want it to be something totally different. And if you couldn't all agree, you should have just agreed to go by the book. That's just how we should be with, with, yeah. with situations like this. If she was by herself, I might even think differently about it. Well, I think, look, when you look at the history of this, right, and I, I had to pull up when it was. It was in the... 1960. Yeah, 1968, the Olympics yeah. in Mexico, right, where you had Tommy Smith and John Carlos, right, second, first and third place. It's a good poster. That raised their hands, right? Now, by the way, what's interesting is I just looked at, there is a, actually a bronze statue in San Jose State. And in that statue, you know who's not listed on that statue? Mm. The guy came in second place. Right, like that's just it's just the truth. Like he's not even he doesn't even show up. But it's like no one was in second place. The only people in that statue is the two people that were raising their hand that thought that thought that this moment was important enough. Did the, the, but it, did they win the gold? They won the gold, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, it was first and third place. But, right, right. It was first, first and, third and third place, and the yeah. guy was not listed in second yeah, place. Yeah, yeah. Right, so yeah. that's why to me it doesn't actually matter which position they are because even in this case, the the guy in third place, you can say he's taking the light away from the from the guy in second place, but it doesn't really matter. Right, it's like. Using this moment to bring to light this massive issue that's happening in this country at the time, right, in the 60s, you know, what's happening here in, in, in the U.S. And to that point, look, I, I understand how this rubs people the wrong way, but that's actually maybe part of the point, right? Even the whole Colin Kaepernick thing, you know, what, what, it, what it did do is that it brought this to light at a whole new level. 
this issue that has been happening in this country in terms of how many times police have, have, have you know treated some of some of these you know black and brown people. And if it wouldn't have been for that country, which by the way, couldn't be in the most respectful manner possible, trying to keep people happy that don't care for these issues, I don't think should be the goal of any athlete. Because whether you're kneeling, whether you're standing on the side, putting the putting your shirt over your face, people are just going to be unhappy that you're bringing this light. What you'd rather have you do is go to the side, talk about it on your own, without bringing this to a national stage and bringing a lot, a lot of light. This comment that you know the whole thing about that you know everyone used to stand and stand up for the flag and didn't matter your politics, races. Yeah, that is true. There was also all these injustices that were happening during the time. If you go back 20, 30 years, and no one seemed to care about it then in terms of like. The whole standing for the fact was a sort of a non-issue relative to bringing light to, to you know bringing to light these these kind of issues. Yeah, so, which is why I think like listen, I I don't love the. I think she was definitely surprised. The whole setup, I agree with you. I don't agree with that she was actually that anyone was trying to set her up. But I have a hard time being really against what happened and the fact that look, if that's what it takes to get people to pay attention and it's uncomfortable, people have to pay attention. Then so be it, because obviously, like there's still work to be done. There's still people that don't think this is important enough that if it was up to them, it wouldn't be. Look, protesting the streets is not a good way to do it. Burning things down, not a good way to do it. Which I, I agree with that part, right? Protesting silently in your taking the knee, like kneeling down, not a good way to do it. Putting a shirt on your face, not a good way to do it. Okay, so let's talk about the good ways to do it. Yeah. <laughs> and which are the most effective? And that's the problem that I, that I, that I have a, that I have an issue with. So. I, I get it. I understand why people will be upset, but I, I put it as courage in what she did and that, look, she's saying, the thing that I actually I like the most about she said, look, look, this thing, this athlete thing, this is like a short-term, th- short-term thing for me. Like, this is like, for me is about the impact that I'm, that I'm, that I'm having. This is what, this is what I'm here to try to do. And if I'm going to use my, and I'm obviously adding words to what she said, but in essence, the thing is like the spirit of what she's saying. If I'm going to use this moment to raise awareness, to create the impact that I can while I can, then then so be it. And there's no question. See what I'm saying? Like that, course, I think that's the yeah, spirit of what she's saying. Yeah, and there's no question that her star will rise now as a result, maybe for some of the reasons that we talked about in our deep dive, which in itself brings up an interesting conundrum or moral you know, quandary, right? Because if this can now become a way to get visibility that you otherwise wouldn't get and endorsements for and all sure. these other different things, then... You know, I think it is. I think a, I think that was part of the Colin Kaepernick, you know. For co- yeah, sure. Made more money result. than he would, did plan. You know what I mean? Um, oh, by the way, for the record, from mm-hmm. our last piece, it actually is female Thor. That's what it's called. That's what it is really female, female Thor. Thor. Yeah, oh, they come up better name than that. That sounds kind well, of. I'm sure yeah. she'll. I'm sure she'll have a name, but yeah. it is the female Thor uh, character. And and sorry about what I said earlier. It's not. The, I said this will all come out in the next piece, but I realize we're out of order. So mm-hmm. the Robin D'Angelo connection is on our last cringe right, or right, cringe, right, right, right. which is the story that went that's going so, down. So around yeah, the NBA let, let's get into that one. Let's so do. so courage or cringe. ESPN's Rachel Nichols apologizes for apologizes on the jump for comments about Maria Taylor. Mm. So Rachel Nichols hasn't had a great week, right? First, there was an audio recording that was leaked of a conversation that she was having where she was complaining about ESPN feeling pressure on diversity. Now, in the audio, Rachel, who's white, made disparaging comments about a black colleague, Maria Taylor, being picked to host NBA Finals coverage last season. This was last year, right? Because ESPN was feeling pressure about diversity. Now, this was, once again, prior to last year's NBA Finals. And now ABC just announced earlier today, as a matter of fact, that Nichols is being replaced by Malika Andrews, who's also black, by the way, or I mean, uh, yeah, black. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to be a silent reporter for the first finals game. At least I didn't see if it was for the whole thing, but at least for the first finals game, right? A role that, once again, that Rachel Nichols was expected to play prior to this controversy. 
Now, in this conversation that took place last year in 2020, she said, I wish Maria Taylor all the success in the world. She covers football. She covers basketball. If you need to give her more things to do because you're feeling pressure about your crappy longtime record on diversity, which, by the way, I know personally from the female side of it, like, go for it. Just find it somewhere else. You're not going to find it from me on taking my thing away. Okay, can I can I can I just chime in here on yeah. this? Okay, this is what I mean is the embodiment of the piece in the Robin D'Angelo story that we were talking about, right? If you need to give her more things to do because you're feeling pressure about crappy diversity problems that you have, that right there diminishes anything this woman could be offering to the fact that the only reason she's getting this gig is because she happens to be a certain color. Right. Right? Yeah. And these, well, there, there's two things there, but yeah, that's definitely that's one. one. That's, that's one. one. Yeah. And the second one is, I'm all for it. If you want to do it, just find it somewhere else. You're not going to take it from me. This is what I'm talking about. I mean, it's like literally but, yeah, the yeah. perfect it's, example of well, what I'm talking about. I, I don't think it's a perfect example. Here's why. I think the first piece you're right about, right? Because she basically associates her getting the role only because she's diverse, only because she's black. And only because ESPN is trying to figure out a way to, to basically address their diversity issues. That's, she's, and I think if there's anything she's apologized for is that. The second part, which is the really interesting thing, and this is the part where there's a whole conversation that she was having with, I forget the name of the, the guy, right, that she was talking to when, when this thing was being recorded. Mendelssohn. Yeah. It, that she's saying, yeah, like, let's just, let's look at other jobs, not just well, the, the one the job question that we should is be like, buying for. Is like, it actually speaks to the limited opportunity that, some of these women have in terms of being these sports broadcasters and why you can't have two. You can't have the, you know, black woman, the reporter and the white woman. No, no, no. You're gonna, we're going to have a slap for one. Forget all the reporters that we actually have working, right. working games. We just got a slap for one. So that one needs to get swapped out. And I think that's what she's speaking to now. The words she used, the everything. Yeah, it's it's like, it's not great. It's a, it's a terrible look. But I don't see it the same way you do I, in terms of it's, it's a direct example of, of what we're talking I about. I think that that is a revisionist reading of what, the, what actually happened. And I'll tell you why. Because the comments that you made, which are exactly true and she did agree with, happened after she made the statement. In fact, this guy Mendelssohn says, here's how you should spin this thing. You should spin this thing as this. I think she was legitimately responding by saying, look, it's, I'm all for this so long as it doesn't impact me. I think she was thinking about herself first and about what's important to her. And then it was like, and then this guy Mendelssohn said, listen, how you should spin this is to say, women shouldn't be vying for one role. We should be looking at all the other right. white guys who have these roles and we should have 10 women instead of one woman. And she was like, but, yeah, but I agree that's, with that. But uh, that's, I mean... Yeah, but that's a very human moment. I mean, the reality is how many people that you know of are sitting here saying, fire me so you can bring on more diverse people that, no, w that want their job? None. None, right? So yeah. that's not a, that to me is not nice racism. That's okay. simply saying like, hey, I like my job yeah. and I want to keep my job and I don't want to be fired for you to replace me with anyone else. I think that's a really human thing for anyone, anyone to make. Yeah, I, I, especially if you like your job. If you don't like your job, sure, you're like yeah, replace it with whoever you want. That's that's, but that's why I, I have a hard time faulting her for that comment. I do think that your point, the first one, is, is very valid, which is you're giving this other person zero credit for their ability, their skill, what they've done. They're you know to be able to do this role and saying the only reason you're getting the brownie some you know some love here wanting to take the job is because she is a brownie. But I think that she. You know what I'm saying? Like that that I, part I totally. I get. agree with that. But if she were here, she'd say the exact opposite. She's like I didn't make any discouraging remarks, Jesus. I said Maria Taylor should have all the success in the world. She covers football. She covers basketball. She's obviously very talented. You know, so like I, it's the opposite. I think she's amazing. I just want just to your point. I want to keep yeah, my job, she, and I don't she, want you know. The difference here is he literally said. 
if you need her to do more things because you're feeling pressure on diversity, then just do do it with another job. It's basically that. So you give all the it's like a shit sandwich, right? Like you give like all the praises and then they're like, That's hey. Right. So anyways, but but look, these comments have been captured were accidentally captured and uploaded into an ESPN. Which server, I don't believe. Which for a is second. still like very <laughs> odd. And then one of the employees, um, and I caught the name earlier, but I, I, I didn't put it down, um, actually shared it directly with Maria Taylor, right? So this created all this animosity internally. Now, Nichols is hosting the episode on the of, called Of the Jump, which is uh, on site throughout the finals, which is a daily NBA show that she's hosted since 2016. Now, on Monday's episode, she did publicly address the issue and apologize, right? And she said, I don't want to let this moment pass without saying how much I respect how much I value our colleagues here at ESPN, how deeply, deeply sorry I am for disappointing those I hurt, particularly Maria Taylor, and how grateful I am to be part of this outstanding team. Now, as of Taylor, she, as for Taylor, she gained Who, by widespread... the way, uh, this amazing colleague, Maria Taylor, who apparently they haven't spoken in a year since this went down. Yeah, they've, they've had major, major issues, right? How do you not talk to somebody for a year that you work with? I mean, that's crazy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, that happens. But even on accident, they're, they're even because so, you're forced to. Yeah, part of the thing that I was reading in one of them is like, because Maria Taylor has her own show. I forget now what it's called. Um, it's like the pregame show. And it's like, going to be called whatever she wants it to be called and at it's this like, point. It's not, um, yeah, it, the, the thing is like, apparently uh, Nichols can't even do a live segment. Like, it needs to all these be pre-recorded because they do not like talk to each other. Uh, and it, which when I read that they were having like I guess the president of of ESPN Jimmy uh, Patero was is trying to get like Maria Taylor to change her view of this, like they can't have the you know this person not be able to like talk to her at all. So there's major major beef right um, now. So for Maria Taylor right, so she said uh, she actually, by the way gained widespread acclaim from some of her honor comments about the murder of George Floyd by police officer right, and has been actually frustrated. As she had also been disparaged recently by at least one other ESPN colleague for speaking about Floyd. Right? Mm-hmm. Now, she told ex- executives, including Jimmy Patero, who is the president of ESPN, that she will not finish covering this season. Now, she said, I will not call myself a victim, but I certainly w- have felt victimized and I do not feel as though my complaints have been taken seriously. Right. Um, what do you make of the fact that all this, she's her contract is expiring and this is like, I mean, this is massive leverage on a practical level too, though, isn't it? Potentially, I mean, the fact that the contract's expiring, you could just let it expire. You and I both know she's not going anywhere. The other woman, I don't for know. sure, I, is. I, I, I think the other I have woman, a hard time. I don't think the other woman will be around. I don't know, Charlie. I, I, I don't right, know we'll on see. this one we'll because um, Rachel Nichols has been not just but she's been around for a long time, but is like this is me. I just, I'm just not familiar at all with Maria uh, Taylor. I, I've never seen anything. Maybe I have, but I just don't know who she is. Um, but I think Richard Nichols has been along long enough that she will have a massive lawsuit if they fired her because of this. Mm. Uh, a, because it was like a conversation that wasn't supposed to be recorded or something that it had. It was leaked. And there's really nothing. You can say you dislike her comments, but to get rid of her because of that, I think what would, would, would definitely be something that there will be a lot of... of, of uh, of losses associated with this. In the case of Maria Taylor, because her contract is actually expiring, I think it will be easier for them legally to just let it let it expire. I I, I would I'll, I'll bet you good money that that's not going to happen. That's that's the opposite of what's going to happen. I think she's going to be reinforced. Maybe she'll probably she'll be re-upped and she'll be re-upped for more money. And I think if anybody's going to get sidelined, it'll be um, Nichols. That's R- my guess. So she well she definitely got sidelined right now for she, for the for the well, NBA finals. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
I mean, part of it is also, I think they're kind of probably using the leverage back on her because she's Rachel Nichols has been around for a while and she probably has quite a bit of now power there within ESPN. And they're like, hey, this is a good way to like check a talent that maybe thinks a little too, you know, too big for yeah, the bridges. We shall see. We shall so, see. Where do you net out on this? Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of the apology, uh, so basically, Courage of Crane, well, you know, white female reporter apologizing for hurtful comments of a black reporter while highlighting the lack of diversity um, and, and female opportunities in sports broadcasting, right? So that's basically what the what it, what it is. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to give it a, it's hard to give it a, a courage right. because of the comments she made. I, though I think, I don't know, I, I don't, I don't, if you're talking to, if this conversation something that's happening between, it's supposed to be a private conversation that you're having someone that you're trying to get advice from. There's very little about what he, what she said in private that I will have issue with her saying, mm-hmm. right? That I will say like, hey, you're entirely wrong from thinking any of this. Some of it, like the fact that she doesn't want her job to get replaced by somebody else, who's by the way, her contract states that she should be the silent reporter from the NBA finals. That's the thing that, that was one of the other articles, right? So. I could totally see her saying, like, hey, wait a minute. This is, like, we've already agreed to this is as part of my agreement with you that this is my job. And now you're basically bumping me out because you're feeling pressure of what's happened over the summer. Like, mm-hmm. that's on you. Figure that out. Mm-hmm. So I have a hard time, you know, the, the cringiest part is saying this comment of basically attributing the only reason why Maria Taylor could even be given that job is because they're feeling bad about diversity. So taking away any of the accolades experience, that is the cringiest part of that comment to me, not anything else. Which is like, I guess if we, if, we, if I have to like sub-segment that statement, that will be the portion that I will give cringe to and probably nothing else. Okay. Of what she said. So uh, I'm not following the bouncing ball. Where where do you net out? Yeah, it will be cringe on that, on that piece. So just you, just the piece of her, not the full thing. I wouldn't give her, <clears throat> I, would, I definitely think apologizing is the right thing to do. So she did that. Mm-hmm. So I gave her courage on that. Mm-hmm. But going back to the initial incident that kicked this whole thing off, maybe that's what I did. Like I'm, I'm encouraged on the apology, and in terms right, so of the cringiness, yeah, encouraged. the cringiness of the of the event is that's in that fine. first piece of not giving enough credit to to Maria Taylor and saying that the only reason she would get that because of she's she's black. So I netted out on cringe on this all the way around, including the apology. And the reason for the cringe on the apology because I do believe in apologies. I do re- believe in redemption, as you know, Jesus, in a big way. But I think it's actually very inauthentic. I think that this issue has been around for a year. I think that employees at ESPN knew about this issue. I think that Maria and uh, Maria Taylor and Nichols knew each other, knew about this issue for more than just the last few days that it's hit the press. Yeah, yeah. She reached out to her when it happened. I mean, and she said a, that she wouldn't talk to her. Right. But, right. But, you know, she could have issued that apology in an email or whatever else and said something. And but, she's but doing it now she, because of the why pressure. Why would she put a public apology instead that was a no, private a matter with a A private apology. She could have sent a private apology. Right. But it was reported that she reached out to her to apologize before and then well, would have talked she, to her. That she reached out but didn't want to talk to her. I don't know that she reached out to apologize. But anyway, my point is, I start with that and I could be wrong. I always reserve the right to be wrong on these things. But... I think that the whole thing is cringe. I really wish, though, that we were doing the cringe on uh, this guy Mendelssohn, because I think you know his whole the the, the whole uh, piece that he said was it should have gotten a lot more um, uh, press than it did, or more or more uh, you know interest and in, 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 uh, attention than it did. He his part. This is a guy who is an advisor to um, to LeBron James, mm-hmm. right? Longtime advisor to him. 
And in the context of this conversation, in the context of all these discussions about, you know, diversity problems and giving this woman a job, presumably because she's black and all this other stuff, this guy Mendelssohn says, quote, I'm exhausted. Between Me Too and Black Lives Matter, I got nothing left. And they laugh about it. They laugh about this. This is a guy who set up an organization. He co-founded more, uh, more Than a Vote which is an organization that was presumed that was to get the black vote out in the 2020 election as a result uh, a response to the George Floyd protest and this is what this guy says when he knows and he thinks that nobody is listening right this is how he really feels this is another example of what I'm ta- what I talked about in the earlier piece in my opinion this is somebody who's all you know his dance card is full with all the right causes all the right candidates all the right positions relative to where he lives but this is how he talks when he's in those moments when he thinks nobody's actually listening right um, look, for me, but but in yeah. that, I think that's a great great yeah. point. But yeah. that's not an example of nice racism, at least not in the context of how D'Angelo put, put it. Right, I think this it is someone is. that actually I no, because to your point is this is someone that had to believe something very differently publicly. I'm sorry, privately. Yeah, actually, the same thing, right? Privately, privately versus publicly. what they support publicly for PR purposes. Yeah, that's not what what nice racism that that D'Angelo's talking about. She's actually talking about these people that actually. Fool themselves to think that, no, no, we're not the actual problem, who are actual allies, who publicly say how much they're allies, but yet by not recognizing that they're also part of the problem, they actually create the problem. I, I definitely think you fall into that. See what category. I'm saying? Like, that's no, no, two I, different things. I understand that. I and think, it's so interesting yeah. that you're calling out like, the Me Too movement talking to a woman who's a reporter. Like, th- there is a level, and the, so both be like, oh, yeah, that, you know, laugh about it. That to me is like, what? Like, and, why would you say that to, you know, and then it's, he, it's like saying I'm, 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 ti- I'm tired of the BLM movement to a black person. Right. And then he apologized for it today. He said, I should have said it or even thought about it. I work to support these movements and know the people affected by these issues never get to be exhausted and have nothing left. I have to continue to check my privilege and work to be a better yeah, ally. I agree. Just. He's a two-faced person. But that's not. That's to the point two-faced. of like. It is, but that's kind of, that's part of the, look, I think that we both need to read the book, Robin D'Angelo's book, but I think in it is the context of not just people who have convinced themselves, I believe that this is somebody who convinced himself that he was on that team too. He founded this organization. He's been talking to LeBron James about all these issues, but he also understands that he's playing into something that he needs to have this position in order to get into certain sectors and advance certain things. So I think that on some level, there's a part, there's a duplicity in it that I think comes out out in these kind of private conversations, and I think that's what's being shown here. I know that's not what we're cringing and on, right. so, but I think it's worth some more scrutiny. There's definitely um, a lot there. And I'd I'm, love to be a fly on the wall with this conversation with LeBron, you know, when, sure. the, when that comes up. Who knows? I if think you should be calling him out. Will he get taken a task on it? For, for sure. And I think, look, it speaks to the reality is that you have people who are doing this. I put it much more as people that, are, that, are, that claim to be supportive of, of issues, of cause it, but they really are just PR efforts, just to just to, yeah. to give the right signals to feel like they're right in line. But the reality, you don't believe in that. You don't right. think about that. That's what this guy's showing, right? So, it, 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 but it is it's so it's all like ridiculous because to your point, he actually found these organizations like he's at the at the face of that. You know, and whenever that happens, it's just such, you know, like sure. barf moment when you see you know, things like that happen. I agree. So, yeah, look, I think uh, for Nichols, that's where I'm at. That's where I net out. I think there'll be more. By the way, there's real-time stuff going on on this right now as well because there's another uh, ESPN guy who now is calling out another ESPN analyst saying that this guy has been, you know, against— uh, I think ha- ESPN has, has some problems. Look, they, I mean, they've got when you think about the, the political jostling that happens in some of these big organizations, especially with these very coveted roles, I mean, it's just— 
the whole thing is 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 probably cringe. I think. Yeah. All right. Well, that's that's uh, about as close as we're gonna get on this one, I guess. But uh, still netting out in the same. Well, no, not in the same place. We started out in the same place. Now you went. You reverted to courage. So we're we're uh, we're ending apart on this one. But. Still, good conversation. I'm sure we won't. Uh, we haven't heard the last of what's going on. At so ESPN. we were one for three today. Yes. Oh wow, not a good day. Thirty-three percent. That's good. That's good. That uh, is good in something. I don't know Horse- <laughs> horseshoes or nuclear physics, but it doesn't. Uh, <laughs> one of those two. It doesn't work in uh, in other uh, in other sectors. But um, anyway, okay, cool. Anything else, Jesus? No, no, no. Are we good? Something fun coming up for you? Any more twelve mile hikes? Uh, Who knows? No, no. All right. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> keep it open certainly there's a a female thor movie in your future all right friends that's us for this week remember to subscribe hit up patreon.com backslash diversity remix let me say that one more time the diversity remix patreon.com the diversity remix support our work it takes time energy and money to make this happen and we will see you again next time on another episode of tdr If you enjoyed this episode of the Diversity Remix, please remember, first of all, to subscribe and help us to spread the word. Tell your friends, family, coworkers, and give us a five-star review. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.